do you miss Florida on an icebound day like today? <laughs> you know I do. Welcome to Trust Hacker, the podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle and seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason. Our guest in this episode of The Trust Hacker has been practicing law since the late 70s, having earned a JD at Florida State University. In the almost 40 years since, he's built one of the most impressive careers in elder law imaginable. He went on to earn an LLM, a master's in law, in elder law from Stetson University College of Law, and he's currently on its faculty as an adjunct professor of law. Listen to this. He's the past president of and a fellow in the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, charter chair of the Carolinas chapter. He was chair of the reorganized North Carolina chapter a past chair of Nalus Council of Advanced Practitioners, a fellow in the American College of Trust and Estate Council. He's a board-certified attorney in elder law by the National Elder Law Foundation and certified as a specialist in elder law by the North Carolina State Bar. He was a charter board member of the National Guardianship Association, a founder of the North Carolina nonprofit Corporation of Guardianship, serving vulnerable elderly and people with disabilities. He currently serves as president of Senior Resources of Guilford and chairs the National Guardianship Network. Currently, he litigates issues in elder law focused on fiduciary wrongdoing and elder abuse and injury. And if you haven't guessed it already, in this episode of The Trust Hacker, we're going to hack Frank Johns. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp, an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. TrustChimp offers intensive three-day public benefits tax and trust training sessions described by attendees as intense and one of the best CLEs ever. All states that have reviewed the Trust Summit materials have approved them for 14 CLE hours. Find out more at trustchimp.com forward slash summits. Frank, welcome to the Trust Hacker. Thank you, Bob. Let's jump right into it. I think we're going to have a good conversation here. You started practicing, I think I got it right, in the late 70s. It looks like you were admitted in, what, 77? Yeah, I actually started in 71 in Florida. Uh, I worked in Florida's legislature writing uh, the guardianship and involuntary commitment laws. And then I, when those laws were passed, I went over to the Department of Human Resources to uh, implement them. And then in 75, I came to North Carolina. So there was obviously no thing that we knew back then as elder law. I guess you were doing elder oh, law. Oh, absolutely nothing. Oh, what's that? Absolutely not. There, there, there was nothing like it. My focus at the time was on disability rights and issues of uh, uh civil rights of those being institutionalized or 
uh, placed in mental retardation facilities. The idea of doing uh, things that wrapped around uh, elderly, the first cases I recall doing weren't until uh, 1979. Okay. When did you first hear the term elder law? Probably 1985. Uh, there was a, a conference called the Joint Conference on Law and Aging in D.C. I, I went to the first one. I think it, the first one was 1979. In around 1986, uh, the idea that there were issues in aging that we needed to uh, look at more in the private sector than public uh, started by uh, 88. Uh, the idea of elder law was then part of the organizing effort for the National Academy which is when it uh, organized. And actually, one of the first meetings was at the joint conference that I attended. They then organized in either in, uh, I think it was in California or in Tucson, Arizona. And I couldn't be there for the initial founding. I joined shortly thereafter. So what year was that about? That was 88. Okay. Who was the first president of NALA? Do you remember? Tim Nay. I, okay. I see Tim and work with him uh, two or three times a year now. He's in Portland, Oregon. And when, when did you serve as president? I was president from 99 to 2000. Okay, so it was pretty well up and going by then. Oh, yeah. By then, we probably had uh, 2,800 members, and I think we now have something more than 4,000. Mm-hmm. Off-the-wall question. What do you think of the term elder law? That's always just sort of bothered me, but I don't know what would be a better term. For the time... It was a recognition of respect. The, using the word elder comes from a lot of faith-driven views of uh, the elderly and the respect that we should uh, accord them. Uh, of course, as the boomers approach being elderly, that's us, Frank. <laughs> we've been we've been there for years, and we still don't admit it. They what do you, don't like they don't like the term. Maybe we don't like and it. Nela, <laughs> Nela is struggling with that. Of course, and Nela also broadened its uh, its focus to include special needs, as you all know. But in recent years, they've been trying to figure out how to actually get away from the name. 
maybe like AARP, just using the letters and not making any mention of the um, of the name itself. Yeah, well, AARP cracks me up in some of their advertisings. You know, they 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 put people out there as as look at the sampling of older people, and they pick very active people who are 50, 51 years it's, old. And <laughs> of course, yeah. And they don't want to call themselves the organization of retired people, you know. So do you really think there's ever any chance of NALA switching its name around to incorporate something more along the lines of special needs? Well, I'm not sure how it fits in the name, but the the current mission and mandate absolutely includes special needs. I think we're pretty well. I think there's a certain you know, a brand attached to NALA now. It's just a NALA. So. Yeah, and I think that's what they'll live with. They'll live with the letters rather than the words. Well, your practice has, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I just get the impression we're, we're neighbors. I'm 25 miles down the road from you, and we see each other quite a bit and talk quite a bit. I've just gotten the impression that over the past few years, your practice is... Um, maybe shifted a bit more into the area of litigation and fiduciary litigation and the like. Am I, am I right there? Yes, you are. Okay. Well, tell me a bit about it. Uh, how'd that happen? Well, more and more people who uh, made appointments to see us to address asset preservation or state planning needs would then begin telling us about the horrors of um, breaches of responsibility and fiduciary requirements or how their powers of attorney were being abused or how the trust was being gutted or how they were being unduly influenced or uh, exploited, uh, and it just kept it's just kept growing. And since we, as a firm, had had litigation as part of uh, what we do all along, my thirty-five uh, year partner was a high-end, uh, complex personal injury litigator. And for probably 25 years, I did special education litigation against school districts regarding the special needs of of students with disability. So we had staff and, and support and processes for uh, taking on litigation issues. And as time has passed, and as more exploitation and abuse becomes more apparent, um, we just let all of our elder law colleagues and all of our state planning colleagues know that we do fiduciary litigation, and if they have cases they need uh, help on, uh, we're glad to 
join them in the case or take the case on referral, and uh, it works quite well. Well, Frank, one of the best pieces of advice I got from um, anyone ever came from a law school professor of mine who said, addressing the entire class, I think it was contracts or something, and he said, one of the best things you can do in your legal career is find a little niche that no one else is servicing and try to become the best in it that you possibly can. And if you do that, you're going to do just fine. And of course, most of them went off to chase their ambulances and everything. And I ended up in elder law and it's served me quite well. But you've taken that a step further. I mean, I know I've in the past gone out and tried to find a litigator who understands elder law issues. And, well, it's tough. Uh, there there are yeah, many if, of you if if you end up with a conventional civil litigator, they really aren't going to get the speed on some of the things you and I know in the world of elder law and, and special needs that they would really need to be focused on in order to really uh, prove their cause of action and uh, prevail on behalf of the elders or disabled people they serve. Well, I think you've touched on something else. I was um, talking to another guest, um, one of our other episodes, uh, who was talking about um, how uh, there's all sorts of legislation out there, you know, the, the impending VA um, rules change. Um, uh, the anti-annuity legislation that may not go anywhere, but they're constantly hammering away at Medicaid. And you, you, you'd have to be blind or have spent the past few years mapping tributaries on the Amazon to know that, you know, the governments are feeling the heat from the financial pressure and everything. And I think the future of, of Medicaid as we know it right now is probably uncertain. And and there's a lot of uncertainty in the bar and. Uh, about what's the future of elder law. And this person I was talking to said, well, <laughs> the boomers are coming online. They're always going to be there. You just may not be doing the same thing. And and I think you've hit on it, uh, uh, Frank, maybe for advice for some of the younger ones is, you know, start looking at some areas like litigation in within the elder law context. Yeah. Add to that, add to that, Bob, that... Uh, our state bars are not protecting us, protecting us as uh, a profession, and there is more and more intrusion uh, by non-lawyers to do what has generally been considered uh, the practice of law. Uh, Florida is a perfect example where uh, a Florida district court opinion came down saying that what some non-lawyers were doing in filing Medicaid applications was the unauthorized practice of law, and that decision was overturned, and Florida is just uh, really in turmoil. Uh, there are many, many things that we thought we had a lock on. Uh, as lawyers, where non-lawyers are going to be able to do that work. One of the only places where that will never happen is in litigation, because only a licensed lawyer can stand before the bar and litigate a case. 
so one of the pieces of the puzzle for the future is what areas of that are truly considered and defined as the practice of law are areas that would fit what you want to do in your professional life. And I guess, Frank, that I am glad that I'm at the stage in my career uh, that I'm at, uh, where I'm not going to go back and <laughs> I'm not going to go back and do that, because mm -hmm. I have been in court on a couple of occasions, and every time that it has occurred to me, I've almost had to barf into the bag to put it rather roughly. <laughs> I, I just I can't handle it. I like the tax code, and my trusts, and everything like that. I don't like yeah. the contentious contentiousness of it all. So anyway. it surely is that. Well, let me ask you this, Frank. What do you think is the one thing, one thing, and keep it non-technical, that has most contributed to your success? A focus on um, how I serve the people I serve and making sure that I've accomplished something that is really effective to them in their lives. I've always described my practice as one coming uh, early on from a matter of faith. My mother was a staunch Presbyterian, and we think she was the first elder in the Florida, a uh, woman elder in the Florida Presbyterian Senate. And our home was always open, and all we were always giving to others and always uh, committed to the least of those people in life we serve. And I just always carried it into my practice for those uh, with special needs and people who are disabled. The families of people who have special needs, especially children, uh, they really they really struggle throughout their lives. And my advocacy in that area has been just significant and gratifying. Uh, I haven't gotten rich, but I've really benefited uh, in serving other people that way. Okay, we've uh, talked. To, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, we've hit the high points. I like flipping things over. Mm -hmm. What's the worst experience you've had as an attorney? Well, the worst is that for some of the people who cannot pay, for the people who uh, are really difficult to work with as clients, uh, I personally too often uh, stay in the case with these individuals and I'm forever being told that I, I should have fired them as clients long ago. Uh, there have been times when these same people that we bend over backwards to try to help and end up don't get not getting paid for the services we're rendered uh, are the ones who, I mean, several of them have filed grievances against me at the bar 
the grievances don't go anywhere, but it still just makes you sick to your stomach to think that you did everything within the rules uh, and you went further than what other lawyers might advise you to, to do and you don't get anything but grief for it. Well, that reminds me of the old, uh, the old saying, you I'm sure have heard it, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Of course. Uh, which true. which kind of leads into uh, another one of my favorite type questions, and, and maybe maybe we're going right towards that, is, okay, if you could take a do-over on anything, a mulligan, what would it be on? You mean throughout the years of my practice? Yeah. That's hard to say because... Um, other than making more money, everything I've done is everything I would do over. So would you go to law school again? Oh, yeah. I'd go to law school again. Now, your son's I'd in have law a, I'd have a better attitude, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> your son's in yeah. law school, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, in his second semester of his first year at Carolina. Okay, so... Assuming he comes up on graduation in the next couple of years, and I know he will. He's a bright young guy. I've met him. What would be your piece of advice to him? You know, Daddy pats him on the back and says, son, fill in the blank. Follow your heart. Too often, young lawyers coming out are just looking for work. And part of that dilemma is they have such a huge burden of loan debt just to get through it. So they're scrambling unlike you and I ever imagined to uh, just get back to even. Well, do you think there are too many lawyers out there? I've heard that some. I think there are. I think part of that dilemma is the struggle with for-profit law schools and the fact that they've significantly lowered the bar for admission and uh, a glut of young lawyers have come on the market at a time when the profession is in its own recession. And they're really struggling. And I look at their work product and things that they're trying to do, and some of it doesn't really meet our ethical rules of confidence and diligence. And I worry about that. My name is Henry Lewandowski. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney in Havertown, Pennsylvania, which is right near Philadelphia. I attended a Trust Chimp Summit in Philadelphia recently, and I had a great experience. I've attended a lot of CLE covering trusts over my 20 years in this practice area, and I think Bob's approach is great, and it's the best I've ever experienced. Uh, Bob combines knowledge of the subject matter with a lot of humor and passion, if it's possible to use a term like passion for such a confounding subject as trust law, but maybe that's where uh, it helps unconfound things. Anyway, I thought the Trust Champ seminar was very rewarding 
and I've convinced my partner to attend the next summit, and then we plan to, to both attend the second summit later this year because, of course, everything is better the second time around. What do you think is the biggest challenge to the Outlaw Bar right now, say over the next five to ten years? Keeping itself relevant and within a defined um, area that the public understands and needs. Because if you know, if Medicaid goes away or the rules just make it too di- uh, too difficult for lawyers to do anything, you know, in the world of special education, uh, about forty percent of my practice was litigating against school districts until nineteen ninety six, and in nineteen ninety six, they changed all of the underlying procedural mechanisms for IDEA. That's uh, individual education uh, for children with disability. And what that did was to just make it absolutely ineffective for lawyers to be involved in advocacy on behalf of children with special needs. I think some of that's going to happen in the larger target areas uh, in elder law. You know, a lot of um, uh, a good percentage of our elder law bar, as as you know, uh, simply holds themselves themselves out as Medicaid planners. Uh, that's where they can make easy money. That's where they can hustle the general uh, alarms about you're going to lose your house and you you need us to take you through the process, and many elder law attorneys uh, have made a significant amount of money with scare tactics. And as that goes away, you know, in the other 13 areas that define elder law, these lawyers don't have skill sets and they don't have real confidence uh, they don't know the new nuances of the uh, four sectors of Medicare. Uh, they haven't educated themselves uh, in the world of special needs, especially its trusts. Uh, and a lot of that comes from many, many estate planning attorneys who are based in tax and looking at issues of exclusion, don't have enough clients to live on anymore, so they all of a sudden hold themselves out as elder law attorneys and the problem is, Bob, they don't they don't go back to conferences and seminars and immerse themselves in NAILA programs or in Elder Council or in any of the other groups like Special Needs Alliance or the Academy of Special Needs Planners and really learn how to serve the clients in, in those 
subcategories of elder law. But they're still out there. And just Oh yeah. That's just goes to further impact and and confirm that there really are just too many lawyers out there. <laughs> well, what is the one thing other than just the direction an attorney might be taking his or her practice. But what is the one thing in the form of a habit or an action that I guess elder law attorneys in particular, attorneys in general take that drives Frank John's nuts? They, they want to ask the rest of us who have skill sets and work to stay uh, up on the law, they want to ask us to answer questions regarding their clients when they haven't even tried to look for the answer themselves. And they are willing to put only a minimum number of hours in the work that they do and the clients that they serve really don't get what they should. That drives me nuts. Well, Reverend, if you will turn around and look up in the choir loft, I'm up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with I you on that you one. Yeah. Uh, you've always been involved and had a reputation of being involved with ethics and, and professionalism. In fact, I remember, golly, years ago when you gave me an almost final draft of the aspirational standards and asked me to look them over and give you some input. Those have been out there now for quite some time. I'm going to ask you two parts of that. Um, uh -huh. The first part is... How do you feel about the way the NALA, first of all, you may have to explain to some folks uh, what the NALA aspir aspirational standards are, but more in particular, what's your take on how they have been accepted and implemented so far? Okay. So the aspirational standards were uh, the brainchild of uh, our dear colleague Clifton Cruz of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Clifton was a consummate practitioner. Uh, he was also a uh, uh, a Methodist minister. I didn't know and that. Clifton was a wonderful writer, and he uh, early on came to NALA from ACTEC, the American College of Trust and Estate Council and from the uh, uh, ABA uh, section on real property uh, probate and trust. And, and Clifton uh, would literally deliver sermons when he lectured for Nela. He was just a wonderful writer, but even more uh, the orator. And he was just so insistent that we stay true to the profession. He did not believe in marketing. He couldn't stand the idea of ancillary and related services. And he would just rail about uh, Tom Bagley Jr., Andy Hooker, others 
talking about how they wanted to be able to sell product in their law firms and stuff. And so Clifton um, organized and chaired the first professionalism and ethics committee of NAVA. And from that position, he said, well, you know, we need to ask our members to do something more than just abide by the ethics rules. We need something uh, to which they would aspire to practice. Uh, and when you create something that's aspirational, you you really it's not enforceable at all. So he organized the committee. And we went through the ACTEC commentaries and the ABA publications, the annotated model rules, uh, and we started postulating different aspects of the rules and asking, well, what more would we ask of ourselves that aren't really required by the rule that it's something we aspire to do? A perfect example, Bob, is... Uh, the ABA and the House of Delegates just will not require that uh, for every legal client-lawyer relationship, uh, there should be a written legal agreement. There are areas where they require it, but they don't require it everywhere. So within our aspirational standards, we mandate that Elder Law and Special Needs Attorneys have a written uh, client-lawyer agreement for every client they serve. So that's an example. Uh, Clifton uh, came down with early onset of Alzheimer's. The last time I was able to be with him was at the NALA conference in Colorado Springs and in 2004, uh, and his memory was fast leaving him. Uh, the aspirational standards were not published until 2006, and now, 10 years later, uh, Greg French, as chair of that committee, has it several of us who've been working constantly for almost three years to rewrite it. And at the, back in 2006, it did not include special needs. So we're adding special needs components to the aspirational standards, and we should publish them by either by the end of this year or the beginning of next well, how do you feel about the way the aspirational standards have been accepted? Well, that was the second, that yeah. was the second question. Yeah. Uh, I think they have had no effect whatsoever, period. I, I think that once they were published and once, and every now and then we have an ethics program where we bring the aspirational standards up. Uh, you know, of the something like... 4,000-plus lawyers in NALA, less than 10% show up for conferences. 
every now and then at a conference, we'll have a session on ethics uh, so that maybe out of all of the NAGLE members, two or three hundred would ever go and look at the standards to see how they would apply them in their own practice. Uh, knowing that, this time around, we're trying to design ways by which we, once we publish the standards, we're going to have um, a series of sessions that involve a toolbox that has all of the components of checklists and forms and agreements uh, that lawyers wanting to step up their practice ethically would incorporate so that they meet a standard of practice that those of us who look at that would agree uh, is acceptable and is beyond what the rules. We're also trying to organize in each state since we continually have to say in the standards Yes, consult your own state bar's ethics rules to determine just where your particular line will be drawn. So we're asking the other law sections of the state bars um, to organize uh, groups that could write supplements for each of their states to show how the boundaries of their rules work with the aspirational standards. Well, you have, um, um, having been involved in litigation, and I know for a fact having been involved um, on the defense side of, of malpractice actions and other actions where elder law attorneys have maybe ended up in a defensive posture, is there any chance, and I'm speaking now as someone who's not a litigator, uh, my some knowledge of torts is probably what I learned my uh, first or second year of law school, but are the aspirational standards perhaps at some point in the future going to provide some basis of being the, you know, what help me out here, the reasonable standards of conduct that would be used to measure? Yeah. Uh, whether an attorney yeah. has has breached, help me, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, the, the malpractice lawsuit against the lawyer would contend that under the academy's aspirational standards, it says this, this, and this, and we are asserting facts that you didn't do this, this, and this, so since you didn't meet those standards, that uh would be the basis for proving that you now practice the client. Well, even for our ethics rules, the preambles uh, and the model rule preamble declares that these rules cannot be the basis on which you would assert negligence or malpractice. Aspirational standards go even further to make clear that these are only written to help elder law and special needs attorneys gain a higher level to which they aspire to be good lawyers. These, these aspirational standards cannot be the basis of an evidentiary standard by which they would be uh, either prosecuted or civilly 
soon for malpractice uh, and with those qualifiers published uh, judges uh, who assert certain rules of ethics against lawyers and malpractice have always written in their opinions that there was evidence other than some bright line violation of the rule that triggered the basis on which the jury would decide the facts of a judge would enter a judgment against the lawyer for malpractice. So it's, it's, which, you know, in the end, this says how weak the aspirational standards are, but our proposition is we understand what aspirational means. And we're only writing to invite those who want to do better and to serve their clients better to find ways by which to do it. Okay, so if they are not currently, and I'm going to wrap up with this, if they, if they, if the aspirational standards aren't some sort of measure that could be used in a tort action, um, since we're on the, the topic, what one piece of advice of malpractice avoidance would you give an elder law attorney who is sitting down to draft a trust for an elderly or a disabled client? Uh, number one, don't put yourself, don't volunteer yourself in a position of being fiduciary. If the client in the last resort has no other person to advocate their interest in that fiduciary position as trustee or uh, as executor or as attorney, in fact, under power of attorney, uh, then you might consider it, but you want to put into writing a very careful statement of how they asked you and that there were no other persons available. Secondly, the idea of who the client is is a moving target from beginning to end. At all times, you've got to really be focused on just who you are representing, uh, especially when you're developing trust, and even more importantly, special needs trust, and those special needs trusts that are driven from personal injury litigation, settlements, and judgments, and the concept of pool trust, because you have so many different people involved. If you don't keep clear about who your client is, it's going to come back to haunt you one day. Very often, a bank will want you to represent uh, a family, but it's not clear uh, from the bank that you're the client, you're the lawyer for the plaintiff in the family. Uh, many times, personal injury lawyers want you to jump right into putting the special needs trust together, and they're not slowing down to clarify who the client is. It could be the lawyer or the lawyer's law firm. It could be the family of the injured plaintiff. It could be the plaintiff. It could be any number of people. If you don't keep it clear throughout the process, it can get you, especially when the plaintiff is a person with diminished capacity. Well, with a special needs trust, that's often the case. Sometimes a disability is only physical, but and if you didn't make clear with that person that that person is your 
client and that you're doing a special trust on their behalf, yeah, it can get you. I would submit the North Carolina Appeals Court decision of Henry Clark, where that very issue came up and I was attacked uh, by the client with diminished capacity and uh, it ended up in a decision absolutely exonerating me and confirming that everything I did on that person's behalf was accurate, but it is still a very difficult minefield. Well, Frank, I'm going to wrap up there, and I really appreciate you joining me. Before, though, um, we part company, uh, why don't you take a moment to tell us if, 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 if someone wanted to reach out to you, get a hold of you, or even associate you, how would they do it? And I'll, I'll post this in the online notes so that they'll be able to find it. Think right. of this as your 60-second commercial break. Sure. Well, our target areas are in those that really frame elder law as special needs. And if a person or a family needs estate planning from a larger holistic relation, relational aspect that is elder law, uh, we welcome them to call the office. We are uh, fee-driven. We require a fee for any consult. We require appointments. Uh, I must say, current appointments are only available the third week in February. Uh, if they call, anyone can call our office at 336-275-9567, and our appointments coordinator, Norma, will gladly explain what we have available, confirm uh, what fees are involved, and I'll be the one to see them if they care to see me. And, and you've got a website, too. They can go to our website at www.nc-law.com. Easy enough to remember. Yeah. Okay, Frank. This Thanks has so been much, great, Bob. and I should I should tell the, tell anyone listening that as as Frank and I are recording this, uh, we are both under a winter weather advisory and we're iced in, so I'm going to tell Frank, stay warm. And you as well. Okay, Frank. Thanks for the opportunity, Bob. Frank. Frank Johns. Truly a classic, and he was right there at the inception of Elder Law. Frank said a lot, and he gave us a lot of information. I had a tough time this time, but I finally settled on the one thing that he said, because I remind myself of the same thing constantly, the one thing that he said that absolutely stood out. I want to see if you agree with me on the hack. Secondly, the idea of who the client is is a moving target from beginning to end. At all times, you've got to really be focused on just who you are representing, uh, especially when you're developing trust, and even more importantly, especially when it's trust 
and those special needs trusts that are driven from personal injury litigation, settlements, and judgments, and the concept of pool trust, because you have so many different people involved, if you don't keep clear about who your client is, it's going to come back to haunt you one day. I'll be honest, I struggled with this one. About halfway through, Frank discussed the need to learn. He was talking about attorneys coming into elder law and about the need to learn and to keep on learning. And I am such a big believer in that. I think you have got to keep pushing out there and learning until your practice ends, either the day you die or the day before you retire. But to make things, but that was my hack, to make things even more difficult, there was something else that came out near the end of our conversation. And he advised us against serving as a fiduciary unless getting it absolutely clear in writing up front how that relationship was formed. In fact, I just avoid serving as a fiduciary, and you should probably check your malpractice coverage before you agree to do so because most malpractice policies will not cover it but then again that wasn't what stood out to for me it was what he said right after that because it's one of the most fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves as elder law and special needs law attorneys who is the client that becomes so muddled in the world of special needs trust planning Is it the bank that's asking you, maybe? Is it a trustee? Is it, in fact, the beneficiary? Or is it really a sibling of the beneficiary, maybe a remainder beneficiary who really has a stake in it? But you have to nail that down because it is that person, Pilgrim, where your professional loyalty and judgment must be directed. Once again, Frank, thanks so much for spending the time with me. Be sure to check out our free sign-up over at TrustChimp.com and get the latest information on the TrustChimp Trust Summits at TrustChimp.com forward slash summits. And on that happy note, I'm out of here. TrustChimp.com 